From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Elections can be vulnerable whether to Russian meddling or to mismanagement, like the Iowa caucuses. Today, we'll ask a man you can think of as Colorado's election IT guy how prepared the state is for Super Tuesday and beyond. Then, our conversations with voters statewide reveal health care is a major issue in 2020. A graduate student in Arvada who told us he couldn't go back to school without the health care he gets from the government. And a few people told us they want the government to be able to negotiate drug prices. Later, a play debuts in Colorado about the extraordinary friendship between physicist Albert Einstein and opera singer Marian Anderson. And then from high art to something lower brow. Skier Size, the exercise film that gets you in shape for skiing. Aerobic exercise. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. From Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election to the app fiasco in Iowa just a few weeks ago, there are any number of threats to elections these days. A first big test of election security in Colorado will come March 3rd, Super Tuesday. Trevor Timmons is chief information officer for the Colorado Secretary of State. Trevor, welcome to the program. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Bottom line, will this election be safe? Can I count on my vote counting? Yes, you can. Actually, in Colorado, we have several systems in place and procedures to actually ensure the validity of the election, making sure that every voter gets their ballot and they're actually able to participate. And then we can audit the results even after the election. Yeah. What do you think is sort of the safest part of Colorado's elections from a voter standpoint? Well, actually, there are many things that kind of come together to actually provide that kind of safety. First, we mail ballots to every voter way before Election Day. And then we open up early voting so people can return their ballots. They can walk in and request a replacement ballot if perhaps they've moved uh, and they need a different ballot in front of them. Of course, that isn't the case for a presidential primary. Every voter in Colorado is receiving the same ballot. Is the paper fundamentally, uh, I know it's analog, it might feel a bit old school, but is, is it actually quite safe? We do believe it's safe. We believe it's the safest model in the nation, actually, because uh, paper ballots are are marked by the voter. So it's a human marked paper ballot. And it also lends itself really well to actually auditing the results of the election afterward by looking at that piece of paper that the voter marked. I understand that you have game planned some of the security issues. You've had training exercises, I suppose, without giving bad actors some bad ideas. What are some of the scenarios you've considered? Oh, it's a great point. Thanks for bringing it up. Uh, So we held a statewide training exercise in January. We had a couple of hundred election officials from across the state actually participating in that election. One of the scenarios that we gamed out uh, would be if uh, a voter registration list was actually compromised by bad actors. For example, one of the scenarios is that uh, a bad actor to try to sow confusion amongst voters would actually modify records of voters that follow some sort of pattern. For example, one of the scenarios is remove all the voters with a last name that begins with S from the voter registration list. This kind of specific command that would uh, remove a specific group of voters from the rolls. And that's an electronic roll, not a paper roll, I gather? Uh, That's true. In Colorado, because we allow same-day registration, where someone can wake up at 6.59 on election night and actually walk in and register to vote and then cast a regular ballot, that sort of system uh, requires that we actually have real-time communication across every county in the state 
to verify the eligibility of the voter and the fact that they haven't voted already. And why did you game out that particular scenario? Does it uh, perhaps echo something you've faced in the past? Well, it's actually one of the scenarios that uh, nationwide people are concerned about. I'll give you uh, the reason why that's of such concern. Voting machines, by and large, and specifically in Colorado, are not connected to networks. And so they're not really subject to cyber attacks by bad actors, you know, from keyboards that are located far across the globe. Okay. Uh, but uh, uh, voter registration lists generally are network accessible. They're available on the internet. They have to be communicating, as you said. Yes, because we want to allow voters to look up themselves, to see the status of their ballot, to verify that they're registered. And those have come under attack in the past. Do I have that right? That's true. In 2016, it's broadly known. There, You may have seen the 60-minute story about the state of Illinois and the attack on the state voter registration list in Illinois. Uh, did they try that in Colorado? Uh, so what we saw in Colorado is we saw what is called vulnerability scanning. So it's attempts by a malicious actor to access that state voter registration list. It was not successful in Colorado. It was detected, and we actually reported it up to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. And they're paying attention, I imagine, Super Tuesday. They're paying attention on election night and responding as much as possible in real time. That is exactly the case. And actually, that's one of the big changes from 2016 to 2018 and now on to 2020, is there's a large community of folks, both with the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is a division of DHS, as well as the Elections Infrastructure Information Sharing and Analysis Center. The, our favorite center. That's Absolutely. my favorite name center. Okay. Uh, so they're, they're looking out for this vulnerability scanning. In other words, bad actors are just looking for holes in the voting system that they can penetrate? You hit the nail on the head. That's what they do. They try to find what gaps and defenses may exist across different jurisdictions across the nation. And then that would be a point of exploitation where bad actors could try to actually work against those chinks in the armor. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're getting a sense for election security ahead of Super Tuesday, March 3rd, Colorado. Uh, returning to a primary, joining the Super Tuesday scrum. My guest is Trevor Timmons. He's chief information officer for the Colorado Secretary of State. So a lot of the, the kind of gaming that you do is about cybersecurity. Do you do gaming of other kinds of threats to polling places? Certainly. Actually, in that statewide exercise that we did, one of the scenarios uh, had to do with a physical interruption of a mob forming outside of a polling place. What do you mean a mob? Uh, so uh, what we've seen in the past is we've seen calls for action by folks who are wanting to interrupt the regular flow of voters who are trying to exercise their right to vote. And is that something that has happened in the past? Is that intel you've gotten that might interrupt things? Why, why that scenario? Sure. It's actually because uh, one of the risks that we face is uh, bad actors actually trying to influence the voter experience to dissuade people from going out and voting. And so, that, again, that's one of the scenarios that we practice so that election officials, both at the, at the local, the state and the federal level, will be prepared to respond to these scenarios. Okay, in Iowa, where the Democratic caucus is melted down because of an app, uh, the party was running things. Um, and though Colorado is a Super Tuesday primary state, it still has caucuses for down-ballot races. Does the Secretary of State do anything to support the parties that run those so that the outcome can be trusted? 
not really other than providing official lists of voters who are registered and affiliated with the party. But primaries, and that's the primary distinction between a caucus and a primary election, a primary election is run by the government officials that are charged with actually running elections all the time, whereas a caucus is a party function that's run by those party individuals. Do you think caucuses are just more vulnerable? I'll put it this way. Okay. <laughs> For primary elections and general elections, coordinated elections, they're really elections professionals who actually run elections as part of their job. They undergo training. They have support systems behind them. Whereas on the party side, when they're running caucuses, uh, they don't run those kinds of activities all the time. Oh. Is there uh, something that an individual voter can do to help secure their votes? I know a lot of this is in your hands. What is in ours? Well, voters, first off, I would encourage voters to consider sources of information that they may be referring to. Um, we have seen in 2016, there were a lot of uh, attempts to influence uh, American public opinion. And those were attributed directly to the Internet Research Agency, which is a Russian-owned, Russian-funded, Russian-manned operation for influence operations. That's right. It strikes me, Trevor, that your system can be perfectly unbreachable, but disinformation in an election year, lies about a candidate, operatives and bots that serve up falsehoods. I mean, that really is out of your control. It is out of our control. But again, with that community that has kind of stood up since 2016, we have a great ability to reach out to partners across the nation, at the federal government and in those private companies, to actually share information about what we're seeing. Wait, so if I see something that is patently false, that seems like disinformation, there's something you could do about that? Yes, I'll give you an example. Okay. There was a candidate in 2018 that was running for a congressional seat and actually saw a uh, an Instagram account that appeared to be uh, her Instagram account, a secondary account, but it was not. We reached out, uh, the candidate reached out to our office. We reached out to uh, the Department of Homeland Security. They reached out to the social media platform. We were actually able to get that camp, that, uh, uh, that spurious account uh, taken offline and actually got a verified check on the official candidate's official Instagram page. Okay, so is this something that voters could report to the Secretary of State's office if they see this, or is it just that candidates report? So in that case, it was the candidate that reached out to yeah. us, and so we were we were easily able to take action. With those social media platforms, though, we have uh, some ability to reach out through the federal government and then to the social media platforms. But uh, I would encourage voters that if they see what they believe is false information, yes, please go ahead and report that to us. Oh, okay, that's but, good to know. But our office has limited capability to do anything directly. What we do is reach out to uh, folks that are associated with the platforms to see if, if they can do an investigation and take the appropriate action. Trevor, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Trevor Timmons, Chief Information Officer at the Colorado Secretary of State's office. Again, the presidential primary here is March 3rd, Super Tuesday. This election year, hundreds of Coloradans have told us how important climate and the environment are to them. They ranked highest among the issues voters told us they feel so strongly about they'd have a tough time choosing a candidate who disagrees with them. It's one finding from CPR's outreach to voters across the state all of this helping shape our coverage this year. And here to talk about what CPR News has learned out and about in the state is News Director 
Rachel Estabrook. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Ryan. So climate and environment important. What other issues did people say they feel really strongly about? Yeah, so let me give just a little bit more context sure. first. So CPR journalists have done 18 of these public events since December, talking to voters in coffee shops and breweries at an agriculture conference in the San Luis Valley. Um, and more than 700 people have filled out our survey online. And so to the results, to answer your question, besides climate and the environment, Healthcare ranks very highly for people this year. And we've heard some really personal stories about why it matters so much. Yeah, like what? Well, like a graduate student in Arvada who told us he couldn't go back to school without the health care he gets from the government. Um, a few people told us they want the government to be able to negotiate drug prices. Um, there's a woman in Denver who told us that her family has experienced three layoffs. And that's important because... The insurance through the Affordable Care Act is too expensive, so they have to have someone working full-time. So mm. the layoffs are tough. Um, and it's not just in Denver. I mean, we met someone in Salida whose daughter struggles with mental health issues, and she was saying that she's um, been hesitant to support national universal health care because she worries it won't be tailored for a rural area like where she lives. But she's come around to the idea because of the care her daughter gets through the health care exchange. Um, and you did some of these events. What did you hear, Ryan? Indeed. I was at the Columbine Library in Jefferson County and uh, out at the Martin Luther King Library in Aurora. And, uh, you know, Rachel, we asked Coloradans how likely they are to vote mm. in 2020 on a scale of one to five. Yeah. And I got more sixes and one hundreds. <laughs> they know that's not in the one to five range. They uh, yeah. understand uh -huh. that uh, than I could count. Uh, now, granted, this might be a self-selecting crowd, right, who agreed to have but it's encouraging. coffee with us. I think that's right. I mean, yeah. in our survey, nearly 100 percent of people said they plan to vote this year. Um, complacency was just not something that I witnessed out there. Mm. Uh, it sounds like that was a similar theme at the other events. I also heard a general hunger, Rachel, for a kinder political dialogue in this country. Yeah, that also came up in some of the smaller cities we went to, particularly on the West Slope. Um, people said they're really worried about political polarization and discourse. The reporters who were in Durango told me that people said they were actually afraid to talk to friends and family of different political stripes. And a guy in, Teller, uh, in Telluride said he's able to get past that in his small city where people know each other, but he really worries about it on a national scale. And yet what I found interesting is that on one of the most polarizing things of the year and impeachment. Yeah. Very few people wanted to talk about it. And this was true even though we had these conversations throughout December and January with voters. It seems like healthcare resonated as an issue for folks of both parties across the political spectrum. Were there others that seemed to cross party lines? That's definitely true. And also housing costs come up a lot. Um, and then money and politics is another thing that people bring up, whether they identify as conservative or liberal. Are there issues, though, that seem to resonate more with Democrats and more with Republicans? Of course. I mean, I think it's just as much that they're similar issues, but they take different approaches to them. But also, I've been fascinated that we've gotten several comments from people who describe themselves as liberals about the Republican tax cuts. You know, presumably this is a lot of what President Trump and Republicans will run on this year. And liberals, you know, some of them say they did get a little bit of a tax break, but they don't think they should have. And others oh. said their tax bill actually went up. And with Republicans? Um 
immigration. They want existing laws to be followed and they want better processes. And conservatives also talked a lot about gun policy. What is CPR doing with this information? So our objective has been to have voters shape CPR's election coverage. You know, too often candidates get to dictate what gets talked about in the election. And it's not that we're not covering the candidates because we are. But um, sometimes the issues that the candidates want to talk about are not what really matters to voters. So, you know, I don't have to tell you that voters get stereotyped. They get put into these buckets of suburban voters who care about one thing. Uh And we wanted to go out and hear the personal stories that influence the way people's votes, the the way people decide to vote. And... um, And, you know, our antidote is to talk to as many people as we can in person and with the online survey and to help voters drive what we're going to cover. I guess that includes climate change and health care. Yeah. So next week, we'll have a series of stories explaining the policies on those issues, as well as immigration and housing, which, as I mentioned, people brought up a lot all across the state. Uh, We'll lay out why voters are interested in these issues and what questions they have, and then where the candidates stand so that we can help voters make up their minds ahead of the primary. Um, And then also this week and next, we're introducing you to people around the state who can talk about those personal experiences that inform their votes. You know, they really reveal the complexity that goes into making decisions about who to vote for. You know, it's nice to think about everyone being complicated, especially at a time when it seems like we have these caricatures of the left and right. But there is a political divide, right? I mean, you said earlier people worry about this far outside of Denver. Has the divide itself been revealed in these conversations with voters, do you think? Absolutely. I mean, we've met a lot of people who are strident supporters of the president, and we've met a lot of other people whose primary motivation this year is to make sure he is a one-term president. So no question. Um, A lot of people are just looking for someone who can beat President Trump. Um, a, A divide does exist, but it's also been revealing to meet people all over the state and talk to them deliberately about how they vote. I just want to say that the survey we've had so many voters taking is still online at CPR.org slash Colorado 2020. And these Voter Voices events will pick back up into the general election. Rachel Estbrook, News Director at CPR, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Ryan. We got an election-related question through Colorado Wonders. It came from Joyce Sanders of Falcon. No relation to the presidential candidate, but she is voting Democratic and she was reviewing her March 3rd primary ballot. Well, I was looking at my official ballot for the Democratic Party and I saw an extra name on there that confused me. It was Rocky de la Fuente III. She did some research, but still. I was confused because the name that came up was a very strong Republican. And I wondered why he was on the Democratic ballot. Well, thanks for that question, Joyce. It made us wonder, too. So we asked CPR's public affairs editor, Megan Verlee, what's up? So for a minute there, I thought we were on to a serious scoop. A Republican on the Democratic primary ballot. That would be a big deal. Sure enough, Federal Election Commission records show there is a Rocky de la Fuente opposing President Trump in the Republican primary. So how did he get on Colorado's Democratic ballots? Well, he didn't. Turns out it's a family affair. 
So Rocky on the federal website is a California businessman and perennial third-party presidential candidate. But this time, he registered as a Republican to challenge President Trump directly. The Colorado Secretary of State's office says he qualified for the GOP ballot but withdrew before they were printed. The Rocky who is on Colorado's ballot is his son, apparently known in the family as RD3. He's also on the FEC website as a Democrat, but the link doesn't go anywhere and he doesn't even appear to have a campaign website. So yes, there are two Rocky de la Fuentes in the presidential race, in different parties, but only one of them appears on a Colorado primary ballot. Confusing? Definitely. But are our ballots incorrect? I am happy to say no. I'm Megan Verlee for CPR News. For some folks, it's back to work today after a three-day weekend. And if that weekend included skiing, chances are it also meant time spent in I-70 traffic. No, it's not your imagination. It is getting worse, according to new data from CDOT. CPR's Nathaniel Miner has this story. Midden Mohan of Thornton has been skiing Loveland for the last eight years or so. The resort 60 miles west of Denver has added a few new lifts, but otherwise hasn't changed much. The drive to get there, though. I mean, I could leave at 6.37, get here in one hour on a Saturday morning, but now I'd probably leave at 5.30 on a day like this. I-70 has always been crowded on winter weekends, and it's been getting worse. In the last five years, data from CDOT shows that more and more skiers, like Mid and Mohan, are trying to beat traffic by leaving earlier. Steve Harrelson is CDOT's chief engineer. You can only get, you know, somewhere like 4,000 cars an hour through that interstate. So what, where the growth happens is that period of 4,000 cars an hour just stretches out. In other words, I-70 congestion hit a ceiling, and now it's growing sideways. Five years ago, the rush started at 7. Now that's more like 6 o'clock. And that means even 6 a.m. might not be early enough to leave Denver on some weekends. Nick Williams found that out the hard way over MLK weekend in January. It took him two and a half hours to get to Loveland. How does that make you feel? Uh, It's not great. It's not great. But any day up here is a good day, so we're going to keep coming. CDOT knows people like Williams won't be deterred. But it doesn't have a comprehensive fix. CDOT just doesn't have the money for a train or to add long stretches of new lanes. So the agency is looking at specific pinch points, like Floyd Hill, where it's saving up to add another lane. Harrelson says skiers can help out by making sure they have snow tires on and chains in the trunk. Those can help prevent traffic slowing accidents. When I was a kid in Leadville 50 years ago, it was a point of pride to put your chains on. Don't be afraid of buying chains and putting them on. You know, they will get you up Georgetown Hill. They will get you up to the tunnel. Because if you and your bald tires spin out, Harrelson says you're not just putting yourself at risk. There could be a few thousand people behind you, too. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Imagine two towering figures, two great minds coming together to discuss, to debate, to share their feelings. Just imagine the conversation. Well, Mark Asito has. His new play, Secrets of the Universe and Other Songs, is based on the real-life friendship between physicist Albert Einstein and opera singer Marian Anderson. Mark, welcome to our program. Hi, thanks for having me. And speaking of unique pairings, Asito is a veteran of New York stage productions, but when choosing his musical director for Secrets, he turned to a Colorado high school teacher, Andrew Fisher, 
is the vocal music and music theory teacher for Littleton Public Schools. And Andrew, welcome to Colorado Matters. Good morning. Uh, the play premieres Friday at the Fox Theater in Aurora. Uh, so here you have Albert Einstein and Marian Anderson, a Jewish scientist and an African-American contralto. Mark, how did they come together in real life? And what was it about their relationship that made you want to write a play around it? In 1937, Marian Anderson had just been in Europe for about 10 years. She came back to the United States and she couldn't get a hotel room. Uh, she was African-American. She couldn't get a hotel room in Princeton where she was doing a concert. So she accepted the invitation from a Princeton University professor to stay over. And that professor was Albert Einstein. And when I found out just that little factoid, which was just, you know, kind of a Internet wormhole one night that I <laughs> discovered this, it just it immediately sparked my imagination. I was an opera singer before I was a writer. And in fact, I began as an opera singer here in Colorado. I'm a graduate of Colorado College, and that's where I first discovered classical music. I sang with the Colorado Opera Festival for several seasons, sang with Opera Colorado as well here in Denver. This is back in the day. Uh, <laughs> so I, you know, I naturally gravitated towards it because I understood it from the, the musical perspective. And we, we know just enough about what happened between the two of them because they were lifelong friends. She wow. stayed with him right before he died. But there was enough that we don't know what happened behind closed doors that just captured my imagination. You, the story is really built around the idea, and I've heard this often, that African-American performers were welcome on stage, but they were not welcome in so many other places, in hotel rooms, at the clubs where they performed, for instance. That's in many ways the... Um, the plot twist that leads to this friendship. Absolutely. And Princeton University was particularly a, a racist environment. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was the founder, uh, not the founder, but the president uh, prior to that, prior to being the president of the United States, was uh, had very strong segregationist ideas. What do you think it was uh, about Marian Anderson and Albert Einstein that each one appealed to the other? In my mind which, you know, is a dangerous neighborhood, so we have to go there carefully. <laughs> but in my mind, she epitomizes the a lot of the philosophy that he is looking for. That, that my, my, the play exists on two levels. I'm a surrealist as a writer because I primarily write for the musical theater. I wrote the Broadway musical Allegiance. I've, so I tend to write about social justice. I tend to write about uh, misfits and people who don't fit in. I've and people who come together to help one another. And the, this play is not naturalistic. It actually exists in the, what I think of as a mindscape where both Marion and Albert can relate to one another because the language of physics or the language of, excuse me, the language of the cosmos and the universe is mathematics and the language of music is mathematics. Mm. So these two people coming together, she has an access to a, a transcendental kind of cosmology in the way she sang. It was, you know, a deeply spiritual person. And that's actually why it was so important to me that we had uh, an African-American music director on the project because in addition to the Schubert leader, the Schubert songs, the classical songs that are part of the score uh, are, are also the African-American spirituals. And I did not feel at all comfortable taking on, as a white guy, taking on that music. And I wanted to make sure that I had someone who 
was both uh, able to understand that from the in, inside as well as the classical music and well and also could be play seven roles on stage. So That's we, right. We and found this magic unicorn. And <laughs> Andrew Fisher. So I'll note that that indeed Marian Anderson sang opera, but also sang spirituals. And you, Andrew, were tasked with making Secrets of the Universe and other songs come alive musically. How how surprised were you to get that call? How daunting was it? to capture such a legendary figure like Marian Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> I'll admit um, I was I was very excited um, to work on the music aspect uh, and and work with Mark in, in finding the uh, right sp- spirituals to include in the project. Um, but when they asked me to play seven different roles, there may have been um, an email or two where I did try to weasel out of, <laughs> of this project. Um, now on the other side of it, though, I'm so grateful, and uh, I think it's given me a um, special insight into the into the play, uh, sort of presiding up on the platform behind everything at the piano. What is um, it, what does it mean to choose the right spirituals? Uh, to well, in choosing this music, since this music wasn't written specifically for this show, um, finding what evoked. Uh, the vision that Mark had for uh, not only the overall theme of the play or themes of the play, but the the particular moments within each scene. What do you uh, really appreciate about the friendship between Albert Einstein and Marian Anderson? I yeah, think, Andrew, what? <laughs> I think what strikes me the most are the disagreements that we see on stage between the characters. Um, what do they argue about? They, well, they argue over um, not necessarily racism, but a response to racism. You know, Albert Einstein, um, being Jewish, had his own struggles um, leaving Germany and, and even in America, and Marian Anderson leaving Europe, where you say she mm-hmm. was treated like a queen, back to America, where she was treated like a servant. They both have these uh, very different views on a similar type of discrimination. And um, watching Albert and Marian work out uh, how they think it's appropriate to respond to those mm. um, Creates some tense moments. They on were stage both thrust into yeah. They were both thrust into political positions that they did not elect to have. They you know one was you know purely a scientist, the other one is purely a, an artist and musician, and yet they became political figures by default, and that was a huge responsibility that they both took on and a big burden for both of them that really haunted them. I want to say that Denver's first lady, Mary Louise Lee, plays Marian Anderson. Uh, This is her singing, uh, you mentioned the leader, this is Wohin by Franz Schubert. Mary Louise Lee performs throughout the Denver area. Uh, But Mark, I understand that classical music is something new for her. New in the sense that she's singing in public as as an adult this way. She has the training Ah. from when she was young, but she is known, of course, as... Uh, as a, a belter and much more in the pop idiom, like with when her performance in Caroline or Change. So this is, for her, she said, exercising a muscle that she hasn't used in a while. And I, Andrew, you could speak to that far better than I because you've been coaching her to 
to do that. I, she came in and auditioned and sang like a dream. And I, mm. the hair on the back of my neck went up and I said, great, straight to wardrobe. And then Andrew's been with her since. I mean, our, Andrew, it strikes me that it would be awfully intimidating as an artist to say, hey, go play Marian Anderson, you know? Oh, I'm sure. And yes, as you said, stated earlier, towering figures in history. Um, but uh, if anybody has at least the local experience for being a towering figure, it would be Mary Louise. How have you been collaborating on this production, Secrets of the Universe and other songs, from a distance, right? Because you, you've been in New York, Mark, Andrew. You've been tending to the uh, future opera singers uh, in public school. H- how do you do that over a distance? Well, throughout the rehearsal process, lots of emails, but we have been sending some recordings Mark's mm-hmm. way. And, uh... and yeah, and then there was a lot of back and forth. Of, you know, it's... I, I, honestly, there's not really a, a sexy answer to that. There's this thing. It's called the Internet. We, there's <laughs> Dropbox, FaceTime. You know, we we just do all I've. I've so will you like hum into a, re- a recording and then send well, it off? We or? would we would be yes. re-rehearsing, send it off and then hope that he had a positive reaction. Well, yeah. And the other to... way around, though, too, is I would actually send recordings as well of of where I would uh, lay out you know, because I, I did the. Uh, the English language adaptations of the of the German, and again, we're not using the music in a literal way. It's not like we have Marian Anderson standing there in a concert setting. It's mm-hmm. it's not really a play with music. It's a musical play, mm-hmm. in that all of the characters. Albert Einstein sings in the show is because it again it exists in this surreal mindscape. Uh, Andrew really is the heart and soul. He actually has a lot of singing on stage as well. <laughs> so Andrew, one of the seven roles you play is Albert Einstein. <laughs> uh, no, actually. <laughs> okay. Um, what, yes. what are the, these seven roles? So I'm the, we, we just agreed not to put a name to it, but sort of uh, Marion's consciousness or um, her Jiminy Cricket. Her oversoul. Her, yes. Yeah, they, he, it's this sort of spiritual uh, 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 a voice that it, that supports her, but he plays a lot of uh, historic uh, figures. Ben actually. Anderson, John Anderson, her father and grandfather, um, one of whom was a slave. Yes, uh, Jackie Robinson, uh, Mary, Mary McLeod Bethune. Bethune. I play her sister <laughs> oh, uh, and her mother. I like that there's so many. It's actually hard to keep track. <laughs> <Yep. laughs> well, gentlemen, this is fascinating, and it makes me want to know so much more about this friendship. But there's so much left to the imagination, which is where you jumped in. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Marcus Ito is the playwright and librettist behind Secrets of the Universe and Other Songs. It's based on the real-life friendship between scientist Albert Einstein and opera singer Marian Anderson. Andrew Fisher is the vocal music and music theory teacher for Littleton Public Schools. He's also the play's musical director. It premieres Friday at the Fox Theater in Aurora. When we come back, what to do with strange old VHS tapes? Hold a festival, of course. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Vic Vela, and this is CPR News. If you listen on weekends, you're used to hearing me say that. But another way I often introduce myself is this. 
I'm Vic, and I'm a recovering drug addict. And now I'm the host of a new podcast about recovery called Back From Broken. I talk to people about how they overcame some of the darkest moments of their lives. It's a show about honesty, perseverance, and hope. The first episode comes out Friday. Listen to the trailer and subscribe now at backfrombroken.org. One of the funniest events I've ever attended was in Denver ages ago. This was back when the Tivoli in Auraria still showed movies. And these guys from New York were on stage offering commentary as they showed videos like this. Hi, I'm Maurice. I'm an executive by day and a wild man by night. Hi, my name's Monroe. Uh, you've probably already noticed that I have incredibly blue eyes. Um, I do fashion photography. I took a sponge ball and <clears throat> was pulling them out of a little girl's ear. I'm looking for the goddess. Are you the goddess? Who is the goddess? The goddess is the woman, is a woman, is any woman, is all women. I'm a 25-year subscriber to both Playboy and the New Yorker magazine. <laughs> okay, those are clips from a 1987 video dating service. Nick Brewer and Joe Pickett are the creators of the Found Footage Festival, and they've been unearthing old video and touring their strangest discoveries since 2004. The festival is back in Denver, Fort Collins, and Boulder this weekend. And hi, guys. Hiya. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. In the age of online dating, it seems so low-tech to think of popping a VHS tape in a player and screening potential mates. How, how did you run across that gem? That was like an, an editor, like a friend of a friend who used to be an editor in California, uh, Southern California in the 80s, like worked for that company and had a tape. It was an hour-long tape from this service called Video Mate. And the, the tape we found was uh, for men seeking women. But apparently there was another one too, yeah, right? Yeah, no, we actually tracked down the creator of it. And uh, I've been emailing with him and he told me that he did make one where it's, it's women seeking men. So it's out there. We're okay. going to find it. Okay, so we uh, first heard Nick there and then we heard Joe just to identify those vo- voices for you. I understand this whole idea of the Found Footage Festival grew out of boredom. Uh, tell me that story. Yeah, we're uh, Nick and I have known each other since we were in sixth grade, since we were like ten years old, and yeah, we're from a small town in Wisconsin. You know, small towns you gotta you have to invent your own fun, and uh, it was VHS for us. You know, Nick actually stole a McDonald's training video uh, back then, and we would watch it every single night. We had a running commentary, and this is like classic training video. You know, where people are excited to, you know, clean the toilets. And we just fell in love with this thing. And uh, The statute we, of limitations is over, right? I can't be arrested for stealing that uh, from my break room at McDonald's. <laughs> I, think, I think you're in the clear. Okay, good. I yeah. think Yeah, we... then that led to just finding other videos at thrift stores. And actually, Joe found some training videos by applying for jobs where he heard they had good training videos. Yeah, and... Suncoast Video. You remember Suncoast Video in the malls? I heard that they had the worst training videos. So I actually filled out an application and got hired and worked a four-hour shift and, and managed to... I guess steal. I, I, no, I, I stole them, but then I brought them back later. Right. I'm, I'm not a monster. Okay, we have a clip of the McDonald's training video. This is the portion about cleaning. Whoa, hold on there, Chris. I'm glad to see you're so enthusiastic, but you're defeating your purpose a little bit, okay? You're sweeping too fast. Yeah, you're right. Hey, that was quite a workout. Yeah, it really is a pretty good exercise routine. I'm glad you look at it that way, Chris, because now we're going to rinse. Boy, McDonald's doesn't do anything halfway, do they? 
Now we're going to rinse. It's so exciting. <laughs> so excited to do He's that. So excited. Yeah. Yeah. I, actually, I, I remember being in a break room. I was in a break room watching that, and at that point you could smoke in break rooms, so there's just a, a big overflowing ashtray and one of those little TV VCR units, and I'm watching that, and I was just like, the world needs to see this video. The world needs to see this. What is it about found footage? What is it about, is it the like the cheesiness, the camp, the everyone's trying so hard? What What is it? I don't know. I think I feel like it's the fact that these videos, a lot of these weren't meant to be watched by a mass audience. They weren't intended to be watched by a room full of people. You know, like the McDonald's train video. It's usually just one person sitting there smoking and watching it. Uh, but with this show, with our show, when you watch it with a group of people and you've all watched those terrible training videos before, something magical happens, you and, know, where you can finally laugh at it with people. Yeah, and there is something. I think because of the era, it was so unique. I mean, VHS was affordable and everywhere. Uh, for the first time, people could make videos fairly cheaply. So all these mom-and-pop production companies got involved and were making hyper-specific videos for a very specific audience. And um, people had a lot of ambition to make videos and not always the, the talent or know-how to back it up. And But that led to some beautiful, accidental uh, masterpieces. I understand that you actually have found Chris from the McDonald's training video. You're going to be meeting him this week. This is something you do is you try to connect with some of the figures in this old videotape. And I know that a longtime friend of your show is the Colorado scientist Andrew Novick. He runs the Atomic Clock in Boulder, uh, and the, like the story of meeting him is wild, and how much help he's been to the Found Footage oh, Festival. Yeah. What, what's the oh, story Andrew's of meeting one, Andrew? Yeah, Andrew's one of my favoriteest people in the world. I love I love Andrew so much. So we were doing a show. I think it was our first show in Denver, and uh, Andrew waited for us afterwards, and he said that he collected videos and he collected collections, and we're like, oh, we got to see this. So we went to his place. Uh, it's kind of out in the suburbs. All the houses were kind of tan-colored, and then there was Andrew's house, and it was bright pink. And we walk in, and there's uh, p- photographs of grilled meats on one wall, and then there's a, a Barbie doll collection on another, and then clowns, and this little mean dog named Tiny Coconuts running around barking at us. And uh, we stayed up until the sun came up watching his videos, and they were all incredible. So we, we actually put together a montage called Andrew's, Andrew's Grab Bag, and it's all Andrew's greatest hits. Because he had collected video. I understand that one of the ones he showed you. He collects you, everything. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he showed you a video of an old public access show in Oakland, California called Something's Happening. And uh, it's a classic. to set up this clip, I'm just going to say that it's a man describing his invention for removing mucus with grape juice and a spray bottle. And uh, he repeats that this is death extracted from the mouth. I'm actually extracting death from the mouth. That is mucus coming out of, out of my mouth right now. Now watch this. We're going to burn this. We're going to put this on this rock. Now we're going to use the torch. We used a butane torch. It takes a lot of heat to make this burn. Now watch it burn. Watch it sizzle. If that's not fat, what is it? Please believe me. The world is dying. The world is being killed by this stuff. So training videos are like one reservoir for oh, this old videotape. But I gather that public access is just like a really rich mine 
Oh, for sure. I mean, and the thing about that is, is people, it's one of the rare examples for our footage where the people did want to be seen by a mass audience, but they just weren't, you know, <laughs> by definition. It was local and regional. And, and on at like two o'clock in the morning, usually. Yeah. But it, I think because of the fact that the, the technology could be in the hands of uh, somebody who just went to their local station and took a class and they could get their own show that... Um, you know, weirdos flock to public access like moths to a flame. That's why we love it so much because it, it was a the home to a lot of different voices, and and it, you kind of get this unpolished, unvarnished version of television. Okay, I mentioned that you try to track down some of the people in the videos, a kind of where are they now segment, and perhaps the most famous example is the search for the Winnebago Man. Uh, briefly, set this up. Who who is the Winnebago Man? So I was working in Minneapolis as, as a production assistant, and when you're on these shoots, everybody talks about the worst job they've ever been on. And one a, a camera assistant said that he was on a, a shoot for Winnebago brand of RVs, and they had this host who was so angry. His name was Jack Ribney, and the crew recorded everything. They never hit pause. They never hit stop. They recorded all of this guy's, Jack Ribney's, angry tirades. And edited it together into just, it's just magic. It's just, it's poetry. It, this guy's swearing. He's, he's so inventive with his swear words. And uh, it was one of our biggest clips of all time. And yeah, Jack was the, the holy grail of people we wanted to meet. But we couldn't find him. We, we kind of hit dead ends with our normal internet searches. But a filmmaker went the step that we didn't think of at the time, which was to hire a private detective. And he found him, told him that we'd been playing his outtakes uh, across the country. And when he found out about it, apparently he was mad, uh, believe it or not. We should have seen that coming. <laughs> the guy who was known for getting mad was mad at us showing his video. But we convinced him to appear with us at a show in San Francisco, and he got to see people watch his outtakes for the first time, like yeah, in a group. We had our eye on him the entire time because, you know, he, he was angry. He was like, who are the hooligans who find my misery so funny? And he <laughs> sat in the back row, and he had his arms crossed. And as the video played, I don't think he realized how much joy – his video had brought to people. Right. And by the end, he was hugging people and signing autographs and taking photos with people. And it was, it was, a, it was a great moment. You, you can die happy. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you two ended up being in a, a full-fledged documentary, indeed, about the search for him. It was the 2009 film Winnebago Man. Okay, we have to play the clip of the original video. And not to worry, we have censored this. The Winnebago Concepts and Engineering Departments have developed a multifunctional bathroom. Privacy, I don't even know what the f*** I'm reading. I wonder what the f the real dialogue is. All of the windshield, for f sake. Tony, do me a favor, will you please? Will you? Will you, will you do me a kindness? Leave. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate that, Tony. Don't slam the f door. Okay, we're speaking with the men behind the Found Footage Festival unearthing old videotape and playing it for audiences around the country. I just have to mention, I think, my favorite video of all time. Why don't we just roll the tape? Skier Size, the exercise film that gets you in shape for skiing. Aerobic exercise fortifies the heart and muscles for increased stamina. Even if you don't ski, Skier Size will help tone and condition your body. So join the girls at Skier Size for a great workout while you watch them ski the mountains of the West. I have been cutting a rug to that sound for days. It's a toe tapper. 
What yeah, I want you to describe visually skier size, portions of which were filmed in Colorado, I think. Yeah, I don't I don't throw around the words fever dream uh, very often, but that's how I would describe it's basically um, skiing footage um, filmed in Colorado and Utah uh, interspersed with um, women in leotards like hoisting up. Uh, skis with boots attached to them as yeah, weights. Yeah, they put the poles and then they put the <laughs> boots on either side. And I didn't know if they were doing that to be artistic or if that's an actual it's an exercise. exercise. That's an actual exercise. Yeah, they make that up. But then it's all everything's just cross-dissolved with crude early 80s video effects. This is from 1983 and might be the most 1983 thing ever put on video. <laughs> And that's right in the golden age of exercise videos, too. Like back in the 80s, like 70s, 80s, right after Jane Fonda, they were cranking them out at a furious pace. Celebrities put them out. Everybody put out an exercise video. So why not skier size? And there's also a skier size, too. So it was so popular they had a sequel. There was a sequel. Well, we have less than a minute, gentlemen. Is, Is there still a lot of video to discover out there? Yeah, although we're a little bit concerned because thrift stores aren't taking VHS tapes anymore. So uh, we're finding that it's drying up. But we have a, a, a office in Brooklyn with 10,000 VHS tapes in it. And we also do a, a Tuesday night web, web show called VCR Party on Facebook and YouTube. And people have been sending us good stuff. So okay. uh, well, we, we, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. I'm it's glad to know you'll be okay. Yeah. Nick, Joe, thanks for being with us. <laughs> Appreciate it. Nick Brewer and Joe Pickett are the found footage festival guys. They're bringing the show back to Colorado this week. First in Boulder on February 21st, then in Denver the 22nd, and finally Fort Collins on the 23rd. I'm Ryan Warner. I'm going to go skier size back to my desk. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Yeah.